My two guests tonight are two eminent scholars of early Christianity. They are Elaine Pagels of Princeton University, Bart Ehrman of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They both are eminently uh, scholarly and frequently published, not only in the professional journals, but they've done very important books for the general, for the lay public. Um, I've written a little introduction. I want to be sure I get this right. So it occurred to me I might start with an appropriate quotation. I think it's from Ecclesiastes. Is it not of the making of books? There is no end. Yes, that's right. Um, and it occurred to me that of the making and the remaking of religious narrative uh, and of the governing theology uh, illustrated by the narrative, there is also no end. These get worked and reworked a great deal. And particularly, it seems to me, when you look at Christianity, as both of you have done in great uh, detail and, and close focus, when you look at early Christianity, you see this going on feverishly during the first few centuries after the crucifixion. And it occurred to me that both of you are addressing that in your books now at hand. Elaine Pagels has just published, together with a colleague, uh, Karen L. King, a book titled Reading Judas, The Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity. And Bart Ehrman published a few years ago, and we discussed it then, but it's just now out again in a paperback issue, uh, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. We have their competing Christianities, what is, used to be called Gnosticism as against what became the received tradition, and we have constant emendations and sort of palimpsestic overlays uh, in the actual rendition of the Gospels uh, and the other books of the New Testament as they finally come down to us. Uh, so this is a, a seething sea rather than a placid uh, landscape, is it? Well, the reason it's enormously exciting to be looking at the early history of Christianity right now is that we have had new discoveries. Uh, the discovery of over 50 very early Christian texts, including many early Christian Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Jesus. Most of these are the ones that found in that cave in Egypt at Nag Hammadi. Right. So this this has really revolutionized the way we look at the early Christian movement. And the the Gospel of Judas, upon which you base your new book, Reading Judas, was released only last year to yes, the general public. The Gospel of Judas was published by the National Geographic yeah. Society. Bart was one of the people, of course, who was uh, working on that on the first publication. And so were you, I believe. Yes, but I wasn't working on the book. But mm -hmm. uh, it was an enormously exciting thing. I mean, this is the first new gospel that's been found in 50 years. Well, let's come directly to it. We'll talk later also about uh, the, the, the untrustworthiness of, uh, of translations from the original, from the autographs, as they're called, from the original uh, documents which comprise the New Testament. But uh, let's talk first about Judas and those other uh, gospels that used to be called Gnostic Gospels, we don't anymore. Why don't we, Bart? Uh, well, some of us do, actually. This is one of the debates in the field, is what to call these things. These these books uh, really did revolutionize our understanding of early Christianity because they painted a completely different picture of what was happening among the followers of Jesus in the centuries after his death. The, these books that Elaine, ref uh, mm. Elaine referred to were uh, discovered in 1945, and they 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 
showed a kind of Christianity that, that didn't believe that the God who created this world was the ultimate divine being, that in fact uh, the God of this world was a lower inferior divine being and that there were, that there were greater there was a greater God above that and uh, so this world itself was uh, was not not a uh, a perfect place of the perfect creator and this stood at odds with what uh, Christians had traditionally thought is that of course the God of the Old Testament was the was yeah. the true God you know when I first encountered that idea or that representation of what Gnostic Christianity secretly esoterically believed and I first encountered that in Elaine Pagel's earlier book the Gnostic Gospels it occurred to me that there's a parallel in Judaism. That is, the in Kabbalah, uh, what is really, the secret doctrine that really is conveyed is that Jehovah isn't the ultimate God. There is God beyond Jehovah. Well, I would say, you see, I do have a different view of that, that, that what, was, what you see happening among the people reading the Hebrew Bible is they, they look at the story. It says that, that the Lord formed Adam out of dust and breathed life into him and made a woman out of his rib and... Mm -hmm walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and, and, they, and Adam and Eve heard him. And so, so they say, well, wait a minute. There's a very anthropomorphic picture here. And if we're talking about God, that's, that's not God, but that is our picture of God. So I do think that there are problems with reading the scriptures that impel people to try to think beyond that image of God. But not necessarily, you know, I don't see all these texts having the same view that, that this God is inferior. I mean, that's... Yes, this just, is something that Elaine and I have disagreed on for a long time. Yes, yes, <laughs> so. it's true, it's true. But nor do you see all these separate Gospels as representing a single movement in Christianity. Well, that's right. I, you see, actually, one of the reasons we, we have this discussion is that the text I happen to choose to, to work on, out of, say, over 50, I work on maybe particularly five or eight or so. And those happen, I happen to like the texts that actually are very monistic and have a very positive view of the world. But they, but just as you said, they are connected, I think, with Jewish traditions, Jewish ways of reading, and with um, mystical uh, imagination. Let's get clear just on the simple sort of archaeological facts. Uh, the Nag Hammadi find, when did it happen? Where is Nag Hammadi exactly? In what form did they find these documents? Well, the Nag Hammadi Library is it's just it's near near the town Nag Hammadi in uh, in Upper Egypt. Uh, the, there's some debate about exactly where the, it was found. The the story that most people go with is that a group of farmhands were out digging in the uh, wilderness for some fertilizer, and they accidentally uncovered uh, an earthenware jar. Uh, and inside the jar were these uh, 13 books, leather-bound books. Uh, that had uh, some 52 different tractates in them. They were written in the Coptic language, uh, in ancient Egyptian language. They appear to have been originally written in Greek, so these are Coptic translations. Uh, and uh, most of them are books that previously we didn't have access to that are, that are Christian books in some sense. Most of them look like they're Christian books. Uh, a couple of them have nothing Christian uh, in them, but most of them are, are Christian, but they represent a, a completely different point of view. And, and uh, I think Elaine and I would agree that, in fact, they don't represent one particular point of view. There are lots of different points of view represented even within this library. Is there even a difference as from one book to another? as to the very nature of Jesus, whether he was in fact a, a godly in origin or whether he was merely a perfected man? 
none of these books understand Jesus to be uh, a mere human being. There, we do know of other Christian groups that did think that yes. uh, from the time period. That thought that Jesus was was purely human. The the uh, Arian movement is essentially of that order, is it not? No, Arian the Arian movement actually, Arius actually taught that Jesus was the pre-existent Son of God, ah. uh, but um, they. They did not think that uh, that Christ was co-equal with the Father and an eternal being, that he'd come into existence at some point in eternity past. Uh, these Christians we're talking about now are about a century or so, maybe more than that, before Arius. And uh, most of them did understand Jesus in some sense being divine, but they had different ways of understanding how this divinity worked. Where do we date these Egyptian or these Coptic uh, authors of these particular texts, or translators of these texts. It's about 150 AD, thereabouts? Well, the books themselves were manufactured in the in the middle of the fourth century, but the question is how early are the documents inside yeah. the books? And uh, there, there are disputes about this, but most of them are certainly middle of the second century, yeah. and some possibly earlier. Now, you have zeroed in, uh, Elaine, on one of those books, a gospel, the Gospel of Judas. Uh, this is Jesus talking to Judas and revealing things that he has not revealed to the other disciples. This is a text, yes, that, that pictures Jesus coming to see his disciples laughing at them because of the way they're worshiping God, challenging them. And Judas is the one who stands up to the challenge. Judas becomes the one to whom he entrusts his mysteries. And the other disciples are seen in, in a very negative light. Now, what mystery he entrusted to Judas is the crucial question which we shall address directly after we deal with some far lesser mysteries, uh, uh, namely these messages. And we are about to reveal what Jesus revealed to Judas, according to uh, the recently released Judas Gospel. As it happens, both of our guests, both Elaine Pagels, co-author of the new book Reading Judas, The Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity, and Bart Ehrman, who last year did a book, and we discussed it on this program, titled uh, The Lost Gospel of Judas Iscariot. Both have worked on that gospel, and both have done books on it now. What then, Elaine, is the revelation that Jesus gives to Judas according to this gospel? According to this gospel, um, Jesus teaches Judas that he comes from God, he comes from the divine source, he's created in the image of the primordial human and that he returns there. I was thinking of the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich who says one of the basic theological questions is that do we come from nothing and go to nothing or mm -hmm. do we come from something and go to something? And the Gospel of Judas suggests that the mystery is revealed that you come from God or the divine source who created you and you go back to God uh, when, when you die. But the other big item in this uh, recently recovered and now released gospel is, of course, that Jesus essentially requests Judas to betray him to the Romans. Yeah, well, that, that's, of course, the, what's uh, gotten most people's attention is that the, that Judas is not the uh, villain in this account. He's, he's doing Jesus' 
teaching because, what Jesus wants. Yeah. Uh, G Jesus uh, wants him to be betrayed. And it's interesting that in this gospel, the, 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 the narrative ends with the betrayal because that's the denouement for this author of, of the entire gospel story. So the crucifixion of Jesus is not what really matters, unlike in traditional Christianity where it's the death of Jesus that brings salvation, not, not in this gospel. And there's not mm. going to be a resurrection in this gospel because uh, uh, in this gospel, the point is not that the body is going to be raised from the dead at all. Now, as far as the gospel directly reveals, what is Jesus' motivation or his, his purpose in asking Judas to betray him to the Romans? Well, first of all, this, this author, like everyone who tried to write a gospel, was trying to answer the, the hardest question of all. I mean, how can you say that Jesus, who was killed in the brutal way that he was, uh, is God's son? I mean, how can you say that this is meaningful? And all of them have to struggle with that. And the way that various gospel writers, including the Gospel of John in the New Testament, is to say, well, Jesus knew, he anticipated it, he actually initiated every step of what happened because it had to happen, he had to die in this way because of a divine purpose. Of course, the divine purpose that the Gospel of John gives is he died for the sins of the world. This text, I think, rejects that completely and says, what kind of a God are you talking about then if, if, if you won't forgive sins without his, his son dying a bloody, terrible death? Um, but this gospel writer is saying that, as we see it, that the death of Jesus becomes a demonstration of the teaching he gives to Judas, which is that when you step out of the physical body, you step into the divine light, into the light of God. You attribute yet another meaning in your own interpretation is given in your new book, that it that the book is written in some sense in response to the uh, the long the history by now of over a century of martyrdom of all sorts of Christians who are sacrificed in the Roman Colosseum and elsewhere. Well, what's striking about this text when you pick it up is that it has a a sharp, angry tone in many ways, yeah. and it it startled us. I think all of us who read it, and. And you say, and, and the way that Jesus attacks the disciples, the 12 disciples, is that uh, uh, he challenges them to, well, there's a, there's a dream that they re relate that about priests bringing human beings to sacrifice on an altar, sacrificing human beings, sacrificing their children in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says to the disciples, you are doing this. We're trying to figure out who could write something like this. And it was only when we put it together with what, it, what we know about what it was like to be a Christian in the second century that we realized, here's a Christian facing the possible threat of persecution and arrest and execution in brutal ways. And some, many of the leaders of the Christian church are saying, dying for God is a glorious thing, not just a necessary thing, mm -hmm. but it's, you get great rewards in heaven, the best rewards it's in the heaven. Way to, it's the way to go. It's the way to go, it's yeah. the best way, it's the high road, and, and you, you're physically raised back from the dead. And this author, we think, is saying, people who, who speak that way, glorify martyrdom, are complicit in murder. I can't resist noting the parallel between that and what may well be part of the theology gussied up uh, to justify the jihadist assault upon the West in contemporary time. That is, the assurance given to those who are suicide bombers and suicide uh, attackers, including those who did the 9-11 assault, the assurance given to them that upon completion of this uh, 
heroic and godly task, they are instantly ushered to paradise, and we know the business about the 72 virgins and so on. Yeah, you know, one difference is that in, in early Christianity, the, the, the church fathers that were urging martyrdom uh, were, uh, were pacifists in the other sense. They, they, they didn't support the idea of taking yeah. someone else out with you. The idea is that you yourself are to gain your eternal life. This by, is the, tr the ultimate martyrdom. turning of the other cheek. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. That is a difference. Yes. Big sure. A very big difference. That's a very big difference. Yeah. However, it's also true that when people... When there's a famous story of one of the, one of the uh, well-known leaders of the Christian Church who, when arrested, was asked by the judge who's about to sentence him to a brutal death, "Do you believe that if if you do this, you're going to go to heaven and get great rewards?" And he said, "I don't believe it. I'm absolutely certain of it." And so it's certainly clear that there were inducements like that. And this author. Uh, is writing in sharp protest, among other things, against that. Is this somehow an Egyptian variant? Did this happen down there in Egypt, but not up there in Rome, or not still back in the Middle East? Uh, which? The, this um, this the version, Bible. this doctrine. Uh, no, I think, in fact, there were, that it's very hard to localize a lot of these, these things. It, this, this document was discovered in Egypt, but it's, it's hard to know where it was actually written. Uh, a lot of documents are discovered in Egypt just because the climate is such that the uh, desert they can conditions be preserved there. Yeah. Preserve them, yeah. Yeah, but we're, we're not sure actually where it was composed. Like, like a lot of these documents, it appears originally to have been written in Greek, and so it could have been written just about anywhere mm. around the Mediterranean. Well, what does this tell us about the first century after the death of Jesus and about the shaping of Christianity? Well, I think I think this confirms what what Elaine's been saying for uh, for many years now that early Christianity was extremely diverse, and that the monolithic understanding of Christianity as being one thing that uh, that began with Jesus and handed down to his apostles and onto the leaders of the churches from there on until we get the Nicene Creed and then Christianity today. The idea that this is all a monolith, in fact, is a is a reconstruction that uh, probably is not historically accurate. You have wide range of people saying a wide range of different things. I mean, here's a gospel where the death and resurrection of Jesus is not what brings salvation. Uh, that's quite a, quite a radical difference from traditional Christianity. Well, this gospel ends the story before the crucifixion, you say. But we, we also realize that it's, it's not a single text. It's not one person. Because there are other texts that were found uh, with this text at Nag Hammadi that similarly challenge the glorification of martyrdom. Not that mm -hmm. one may have to die as a martyr, but that it's a glorious thing to encourage people to do. When you go to those other Nag Hammadi texts, yeah. and the ones that have been already rather fully analyzed and written about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, what, what, what are some of the others? The Gospel been, of Philip, the Gospel of Truth, tr uh, well, when the you, Apocalypse of Peter. When you pull those together, is there a unified view that is to be found across those five or six major texts, or does each one represent a different strand of Christianity? Uh, they don't each represent a different strand of Christianity, but some of them do stand together and um, and and hold a, a unified view because they some of the some of these documents probably were produced by Christian groups that had similar perspectives. Uh, it's kind of like the the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament in some ways is a unified text, and that most of the people writing in the New Testament have similar views. But on the other hand, there there's extreme diversity in the New Testament, uh, much more than you would suspect by by 
just looking at it because it's between two covers now, and so you, you simply assume that all these authors are saying the same thing. Hmm. In fact, they're saying very different things in some ways, and that's the way it is with any collection of books that you'd find in antiquity. There'll be some things that are common, but a lot of things that are different as well. Not far away from where we are sitting right now is a great institution, the Moody Bible Institute. As it happens, uh, Bart Ehrman was once a student there uh, and um, was once, in fact, a believer in the fundamentalist approach to the Bible, uh, believed in the inerrancy, the absolute inerrancy of Scripture. They still believe that over at the Moody Bible Institute, though Bart Ehrman, as he has written about himself, has fallen away from that pattern of certainty and that pattern of conviction. How do they take it, though, in fundamentalist circles, whether at Moody Bible or yet other major seminaries of which uh, you are aware, with which you may have some contact? How do they take this brand of modern scholarship, which points up that the New Testament, as you've got it, for that matter, the Old Testament, as we've got it, is hardly inerrant, and not only has it been contested so that some books have survived and others have been pushed aside, but also, as Bart makes very clear, uh, in summarizing a great deal of scholarship in his new book, in his book of a year ago, misquoting Jesus, uh, the story who changed the Bible and why, the Bible itself, the inerrant Bible, has been altered, translated, mistranslated, additions uh, have been put in, uh, so that what we've got now, what the scholars who put together the King James version of the Bible, was already a compendium of many errors, additions, mistakes, emendations, and so on that accumulated over more than a thousand years. Right. I, I think, I think... Uh, what do the, those who insist on the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, how do they respond to this? Well, I think, you know, there are very good scholars who are evangelical Christians, so I, I don't want to say that, uh, that uh, you know, that, that it's simply a, a group of inferior uh, thinkers out there, but uh, it is a problem that, in fact, there are differences in the New Testament, discrepancies, contradictions, and uh, I think what most evangelical scholars would say is that there are mistakes in the copying of the Bible over time. Scribes made mistakes, but that when you get back to the autographs, the originals, that in fact these discrepancies uh, disappear. The other thing they would say is that the sort of thing that Elaine and I are working on now with the diversity of early Christianity, they would say that these various Christian groups were very much on the margins and that there was one major church from the very beginning that had one point of view uh, and that every now and then a heretic would come along and change things. But, but basically, there was one, one perspective in early Christianity. Well, that's an interesting response and a strong hypothesis, I should think. Uh, is that a hypothesis in itself um, persuasive, or can it be dismissed? Well, it can be supported if you claim, for example, as, as such people tend to do, these texts you work on, the Gospel of Judas and so forth, are very late. They're very derivative. They're not important. They don't have any significant material about Whereas Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right. Matthew, were Mark, done Matthew, Mark, Luke are not only early, but authentic and reliable. Yeah. And that distinction is often made. And then there's often the suggestion that people who work as Bart Ehrman does, or as I do, are attacking Christianity because they, they don't see this as scholarly work in that way. What mm -hmm. we think we're doing is, is enriching the study of the early Christian movement by seeing it as much more detailed, much more human, much more um, complex than we'd ever seen it before. Dare I do what I'm about to do? If this is impertinent or intrusive, forgive me. But I pose the question and look for an answer after some impending commercials. Are you, either of you and separately, each of you, still Christian? Or are you something otherwise? 
uh, you are surely scholars of the of the history of Christianity and of the uh, major texts of Christianity, but do you remain in any significant sense Christian yourselves? We uh, will uh, go at those questions directly after an update on the news and then some quick commercials. Our two guests are leading um, students of scholars of uh, Christian texts and uh, have been so recognized for many years. Elaine Pagels, together with Karen L. King, uh, is the author most recently of Reading Judas, The Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity. It is the shaping of Christianity in a way that we are talking about tonight. Uh, Bart Ehrman has done many books as well, and the one in hand at the moment is Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. But as I noted earlier, a book of last year by Bart uh, was The Last Gospel of Judas Iscariot. The question I put to you a moment ago is quite simple. If you do this sort of work, does it tend, I know you both started as Christians, does it tend to ultimately alienate you from the faith? Bart Ehrman. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I started out in this work as a very strong evangelical Christian who had had a born-again experience in high school. And, and as you said, I went off to Moody Bible Institute to study the Bible. Uh, in part because of the kind of historical research I did, I, I started having doubts about a lot of my evangelical commitments uh, to the Bible. Uh, and eventually I, I uh, left the evangelical fold and became a just uh, more of a run-of-the-mill liberal uh, Christian. Uh, uh, right now, I'm not a Christian. I actually became an agnostic about eight or nine years ago, uh, but it had nothing to do actually with historical research. It, it uh, had everything to do with uh, my inability to uh, explain the state of this world uh, of the place of suffering and misery and pain if there is a How good God who is in charge so of it. The, the theodicy concern is what estranged you from Christianity itself. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's what made me leave the faith. How interesting, Elaine Fagel. Well, I'd say my trajectory is different. Um, I was raised in a nominally Protestant family. My father had given up um, Christianity for Darwin, became a biologist, thought the Bible was, you know, a bunch of lies, and as soon as people were sophisticated enough, they would give up religion and turn to science. And so my parents were quite appalled when, as in high school. Uh, I went to an evangelical church. I was born again. I, it, the intensity and passion and power of that group was was wonderful, and I really um, engaged it. After about a year, my fellow Christians were telling me that one of my friends wasn't wasn't a Christian, so he was going to go to hell. And at that point, I I realized I didn't believe that. Didn't make sense to me, and I left. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try to find out what it was about religion or Christianity in particular that was so powerful. So I thought, well, maybe if I read it in Greek, I could get closer to the original. So I went and read Greek and fascinated by Greek religion. And then I wanted to find out about early Christianity. And then I went to graduate school and found out about these other gospels. But so this has been part of a kind of spiritual quest. Um, but you know, it's an intellectual search at the same time. And I love the Christian tradition. I live in it to a large extent. Um, I participate in it. I do the work I do because mm -hmm. it allows me to participate in it and have the questions and the reservations and the the whole range you of... You say you love it 
the Christian tradition, you, you participate in it. I suppose that means churchly activity, among other things. I do, not not all the time, but and I And what's do. the nomination? Episcopal. So you are still, would you then say, yes, I am still a Christian? Yes, I'm an Episcopalian. I would say that. I am yeah. an Episcopalian. Um, can, you, can you assert the validity of... Uh, all the major items in the Nicene Creed or in the Apostles' Creed? Well, if I wrote the book called Beyond Belief because the answer to that is no. There was Christianity for over 300 years before there was a creed like that. Um, I don't think that being a Christian has to do with accepting or rejecting that creed and its tenets. Mm -hmm. has, I think, to do much more with the teachings of Jesus. Um, By that you mean the moral teachings, I mean? Yes, I do. Yeah. And some of the, you know the imaginative understanding of the early Christians. But who is Jesus to you? Jesus is a charismatic teacher of enormous fascination about whom we actually know very little. Mm. What fascinates me is who Jesus becomes to countless people all over the world for 2,000 years. I mean, that this very unlikely story became the basis of this extraordinary phenomenon we call Christianity. But to you, Elaine, Jesus is not uh, a portion of the triune God. No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, that's not the way no. I see it. That's part of the tradition. I study religion because it's not, I'm not a theologian because theologians study God. I study religion because I think human beings struggled with those traditions mm -hmm. and came up with these formulations. You are both engaged in still the search for the historical Jesus. And then you're engaged in the attempt to reconstruct and find out what they made of the historical Jesus as they shaped the Christian faith and shaped the Christian tradition. We've had an event recently, an announcement recently, uh, which was supposed to be world-shaking in its significance, namely the revelation that the tomb of the whole Jesus family has been, has been located, has been investigated, and this proves all sorts of interesting things. Uh, who were the people who made that announcement? Well, the the, uh, the the people who wrote the book about this, in fact, are not scholars. They are uh, they're uh, they're film producers, and uh, uh, they uh, when they started out uh, studying these uh, these materials, they actually actually by their own confession knew nothing about them. They knew they knew nothing about the history of Israel. They knew nothing about uh, the history of Jerusalem. They knew they didn't know what an ossuary is, which is a it's a bone box. And now they're making the case that these ossuaries contain the skeleton of Jesus. And I, I You speak of the materials they said. What are the actual materials and where were they found and so on? Uh, well, there's a tomb, there's a tomb near Jerusalem that, uh, that had several uh, ossuary boxes, ten, 10 bone boxes, yeah. and uh, on them were scribbled names. And these names uh, link up with uh, names known in the New Testament, such as Jesus and Joseph and Mary. And the claim is that it would be uh, highly unusual to find these names on bone boxes in a tomb in Jerusalem, unless this, in fact, was the tomb of Jesus himself uh, and his family. Now, th th this discovery actually wasn't made last year. It was made some years ago, wasn't it? It was made some years ago by archaeologists who actually are scholars and who realized that, in fact, this concatenation of names is is virtually meaningless. Uh, these are some of the most common names uh, in the ancient uh, ancient uh, Jewish world. Uh, and so the, the fact that they happen to be all together in one tomb doesn't really 
prove anything. The, 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 the strongest, um, there, there are lots and lots and lots of holes in the, in the argument that this could be Jesus' family tomb, uh, two of which are that Jesus' family was uh, lower, made up of lower-class peasants, and the only people who had family tombs were the upper-class elite. The other thing is, if Jesus' family had a tomb, it wouldn't be in Jerusalem where they didn't live. It'd be in Nazareth where they did live. Uh, and so there, there's really, uh, I, I don't know anybody who's independently looked at this uh, who has been, become convinced that, in fact, this could be the family tomb of Jesus. They held a big press conference in New York only about a month ago. I was invited to it, as I suppose were lots of other people who do radio programs. I did not go. Were either of you there? Uh, I wasn't there. My publisher uh, actually co-sponsored it, and uh, the, uh, the Harper San Francisco and asked me if I was interested, mm -hmm. and I, I uh, actually declined. I was asked to go and, and, and wouldn't. I mean, it just as soon as I looked at, at what they'd written, I just realized that Bart is entirely right, that this is, there's nothing convincing about this. And, you know, some people think that archaeologists would hesitate because it would shake up something. Now, that's ridiculous because archaeologists love discoveries. And if this were a genuine discovery of possibly the tomb of Jesus, archaeologists would be having conferences on it right now. The fact that nobody is 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 testimony to the fact that anybody who seriously knows about this kind of work realizes that it's a very sketchy and I think sort of media grabbing Are the fellows who wrote the book uh, suggesting that Jesus lived on and married Mary Magdalene and so on and ultimately that family generated who was it, Charles Bartell or something, or the, Mer the Merovingian dynasty generally. <laughs> are, are those guys also involved in this? I know uh, the man who did the novel, The Da Vinci Code, was then sued by these earlier uh, authors. They're two English guys. Right, that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. That's, uh, yeah, so. Uh, that, that's a different real yeah, Jesus that, operation, that, isn't it? Uh, although the motifs are strikingly similar. Jesus uh, and Mary Magdalene get married and have a child. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the ossuaries in this tomb apparently is the son of uh, Jesus and Mary. And so it's uh, it's actually the Da Vinci Code meets archaeology. But um, as, <laughs> well as, uh, as with the Da Vinci Code, I'm afraid that, in fact, this is more fiction than fact. Is, is it getting a lot of play? They're they're about to make a movie out of it. Or was that the, I don't or know. a big television special? I haven't heard like it, that. but but you know, there was a I TV special, a two-hour Discovery Channel. It's been shown uh, already. It's been shown already. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is not having any. This is not making any, any waves that are lapping, on the shores of the established churches. No, and, the, and Elaine's completely right that it's it's not as if there's a major ideological. Uh, uh, push against this kind of thing because there are plenty of scholars who are not Christian who in principle aren't opposed to the idea of Jesus' skeleton being discovered mm -hmm. because they, they don't think Jesus was raised from the dead. So they would have no trouble in theory with Jesus' skeleton being discovered. And so it's not that this is a conspiracy against this view. It's just that there isn't sufficient evidence for it. I thought I saw some mention in one of the stories covering this that they were somehow going to extract DNA from some of the bones They've in the done that. They, they, they What they are they going to try to match it to? What, well, what they tried to, yeah, they, right. Uh, no, what they're trying to do is to see whether the DNA uh, is indicates family relationship between the people in the oh. tomb. And the, the idea is they took, they took the Mary box and the Jesus box, and they did the DNA analysis to show that, in fact, they, were not, they did not have the same mother. Uh, and that that for them was proof that they were. Uh, if they're not siblings, they must be a married must couple. Be spouses, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd also heard that there were 35 burials in that tomb, not not 10, and therefore that the incidence of these very common names, as you pointed out, is is much less striking than it would be if you had only those names. 
Right. Plus, the uh, the statistical analysis they used in order to establish that this would be an unlikely was was really uh, quite bizarre, and I think uh, uh, un unconvincing. I mean, it it goes into certain kinds of details that you probably don't want to know about, but uh, but in fact, uh, I don't think too many people have been convinced by it. The two of you are essentially researching and have for some time done very important work in the history of Christianity, the shaping of the Christian narrative and of Christian doctrine, particularly in those centuries when so much was up for grabs and there was so much competition uh, for, between perhaps alternative Christianities in the first and second uh, centuries. Uh, another great question, of course, is the one that Schweitzer raised. Uh, he didn't raise it, he reported on it in his book, The Search for the Historical Jesus, from Reimarus to Rede, isn't that it? Mm -hmm. Subtitled, Der Versuch dem historischen Jesu. And work has continued on that as well. And if you aren't doing the attempts to find out more about the historical Jesus, you know lots of people who are. When we return from some impending commercials, I'd love to hear what's going on in that area of Christological scholarship. We return directly to Elaine Pagels and Bart Ehrmann after these words. And we return to Bart D. Ehrmann, uh, whose um, newest book, actually it's a reprint of what is not his most recent book, but there's always another one in the works with Bart, but uh, Misquoting Jesus has just been reissued in a fine paperback edition. Uh, that's published by Harper San Francisco, is it not? And uh, the newest book by Elaine uh, Pagels is, you say Pagels or Pagels? Pagels, that's I, what I, that's like what I, I just said Pagels, <laughs> I knew it sounded wrong. I've been saying Pagels all night. Um, uh, that newest book, together with Karen L. King, who is a professor at Harvard, isn't yes. she, mm -hmm. uh, is titled Reading Judas, the Gospel of Judas, and the Shaping of Christianity. And that is just published by Viking. Well, uh, the first time you were ever here, Bart, we did talk about the search for the historical Jesus. You had done a book on that. It would have been a good 10 years ago thereabouts, I think. Uh, yeah, that's, that's about right. Um, Where does that search stand these days? Well, I think there's a lot of difference of opinion among uh, researchers mm -hmm. on the historical Jesus. There, there are some things that almost everybody agrees on uh, who's, who does this, this seriously is scholarship. Almost everybody agrees that to understand Jesus, you need to put him in his first century Palestinian Jewish context. Uh, that sounds rather obvious to most people today, but for, for many centuries, people didn't look at it that way. Uh, one of the things that means is that the more you know about first century Palestine, the more, uh, the better you can understand Jesus within his own Which means you've got to know Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew, and mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a Jew, and what kind of Jew was he? Because Judaism in, uh, in that time was like Christianity in the centuries following. is extremely diverse. And so what kind of Judaism did Jesus uh, represent? Uh, there are differences of opinion about it, but, but you mentioned uh, Schweitzer, and uh, the majority of scholars uh, since Schweitzer have, in America at least, and in Germany, have uh, maintained that Jesus was in some way some kind of apocalyptic prophet. Um, there, there are a lot of scholars who are disagreeing with that now, especially the scholars involved with the Jesus Seminar, but my, uh, my judgment mm -hmm. is that most, most scholars still hold on to this idea that what Jesus really was all about was uh, that he was proclaiming that the kingdom of God was soon to appear and that people needed to prepare for it because there was going to be a divine intervention in history in which God would overthrow the forces of evil and bring in a good kingdom, and that it was going to happen in the lifetime of his disciples. Uh, we, we do know that there were n a number of other such apocalyptic uh, figures in historical uh, Israel at that time. Sam Sandmel did 
a major work on that, didn't he? Yeah, no, he was he was one of the brilliant uh, Jewish scholars working on the New Testament, yeah. and uh, and we we know a good deal about apocalyptic Judaism in part because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were uh, discovered about a year and a half after the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, but also other Jewish writings from the time. Uh, this was a point of view that was quite dominant in parts of Palestine, and it appears that Jesus himself was a was an apocalyptic mm -hmm. Jew. The excitement over uh, the earlier announced discovery of the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus, which turns out to have been sort of a forgery, uh, though it took in the people who, uh, Herschel Shanks particularly, the editor of or publisher of the Biblical Journal of Biblical Archaeology, yeah. isn't it? Biblical Archaeology uh, Review. Biblical Archaeology Review. And now this more recent thing where we've got the whole family in their <laughs> separate boat yeah. boxes. What that reflects is a hunger for some operative facts about the man Jesus. Well, it seems it's clear. We know now. One thing is very clear yeah. to us is that there's a lot we didn't, we never knew about Jesus before. And the story that many people learned in Sunday school is a kind of what, what our professor Christopher Stendhal used to call play Bible land, you know. And now we're beginning to see a, a very real, dense, complex, fascinating history, much more than we ever thought. Uh, many more groups, controversies, and struggles within that movement. Many more points of view about who was Jesus and what was the message. Can modern scholarship ever sort all of that out and give us a definitive, trustworthy account of those of those days and those people? Uh, I don't think history can ever be definitive. I think that uh, that's the challenge and also the excitement of doing history. There are always new discoveries. Uh, there are new methodologies that are developed, uh, new insights. Uh, and so there's always progress being made. And I don't think you, you'll ever arrive because the, the thing about history is that it can't be proven. You can't demonstrate uh, with certainty what happened in the past. You can only establish levels of probability and different generations weigh these probabilities differently. There are still some people, I suppose they must be um, sort of extremists off to the side uh, writing uh, uh, in uh, their lonely attics with no scholarly connections, but who still publish strange little screeds arguing Jesus is an invention. He never existed. Yes, you know, this this has recently become uh, quite quite the thing. I get questions almost every week from people asking me whether I think Jesus uh, existed, which strikes me as very strange because I, I don't know any serious historian who actually no, doubts enough. it. But there are there are uh, people who write books that uh, tend to sell a lot. Uh, we claim that, that Jesus was all made up, that in fact uh, the, uh, the ancient mystery religions were the basis for coming up with the idea of a Christ who died and rose from the dead. Uh, I, I don't think too many scholars take it take this sort of thing seriously, though. And once again, a quick reintroduction of our guests, and we go directly to the phones. Uh, Elaine Pagels, to give the full um, credentials, is the Harrington Spear Payne Professor of Religion at Princeton University. Her previous books include The Gnostic Gospels, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent, Beyond Belief, The Secret Gospel of Thomas. She's the co-author now with Karen King of Harvard of the new book, uh, Reading Judas, the Gospel of Judas, and the Shaping of Christianity. That's published by Random House. Bart Ehrman is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor and Chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His previous books include The Lost Gospel of Judas Iscariot, A New Look at Betrayer and Betrayed, uh, and Lost Christianities, The Battles for the Scriptures, and The Fathers We Never Knew. And he's uh, the author as well of the recently republished Misquoting Jesus, the story behind 
who changed the Bible and why. Directly to the first caller. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Milt. Once again, you have a very interesting program. All you have to do is get very interesting guests. <laughs> Apparently so. Uh, in any event, with other historical figures like Louis XIV or Henry VIII, you have contemporary writings about them, and you can judge the truth or falsity of, based upon something that's contemporary. But with Jesus, the writings all seem to appear long after Jesus was dead, and the people writing them seem to have different views. And so my question is, what did these individuals base their writings upon? Was there anything contemporaneous? Did they refer to some other <laughs> writings? Or, uh, or how did they arrive at their own views of what Jesus was about? There is virtually nothing, isn't there? There's um, something from Josephus, which may have been an addition put in there by somebody else. And, of course, there's right. the mention in Tacitus of the Jews of Rome, yes. or rather the, uh, the Christians of Rome, who follow the, uh, the preachments of somebody whom Tacitus misunderstands as a man called Christus. So, based, yes. on, based on that, uh, I heard your guests earlier say that uh, historians are convinced that Jesus lived at uh, the time he lived. If there are no contemporary writings and there is nothing uh, that you can refer to, what do historians refer to when they're convinced about Jesus' existence at that time? We do have mentions, uh, as, as Milt Rosenberg mentioned, um, among Roman and Jewish authors who are not Jesus' fans, uh, indicating that they knew about the history of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was crucified by order of Pontius Pilate, uh, in the in the early 30s of the first century, um, it's we can't prove that Jesus did exist, but we can't prove that Julius Caesar existed. I mean, there there are no definitive proofs of that kind in history, as as Bart Ehrman pointed out. Well, wait a minute. We've got Jesus. We've got Julius Caesar, with his name printed on Roman coinage. Well, that's true. And, with you know, with Jesus though, the, the other thing to point out is that we 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 don't have anything written during his day. That's absolutely true, and we have nothing from Jesus himself. But uh, we have one author who knew Jesus' brother and his closest disciple, the the Apostle Paul, who who knew James and knew Simon Peter and wrote about them. And so. Uh, I mean, presumably, th these are off-the-cuff comments that Paul makes, so he's not trying to make any particular point with them. He just makes these uh, off-the-cuff comments about James and, and, and Peter. And so I think that's pretty good evidence that, uh, that Paul, at least, uh, can be used as, uh, as showing that Jesus must have existed. We also, even though the Gospels are written, the ones that we have, about a generation after Jesus' death, they contain oral tradition. After all, in a culture where most people cannot read, they often have excellent uh, or, um, memory of sayings and teachings of famous teachers. So much of what's in the Gospels probably was taught by Jesus. Our thanks to the caller for a useful question, and we go directly back to the phones and to the next caller. Good evening. Uh, good morning. Uh, good evening. That's a wonderful show tonight. Um, my question had to do with the divisions uh, the between the apostles, in particular, uh, the, the epistles of Paul reference disputes between the other uh, apostles, and there's one one dispute that's alluded to, uh, wherein uh, James uh, thought that faith without works was dead, but uh, Paul said that uh, faith alone could uh, could get you into heaven. My question is, 
Um, now, now that actual uh, the, the difference between James and Paul, both of those are are, are put into the New Testament. But uh, uh, so obviously there's a conflict right there. Mike, uh, uh, my, my my what I'm trying to, uh, to figure out here is did these other apostles accede to to, to Paul? Did they uh, uh, actually see his point of view? We have no writings in the uh, New Testament to indicate that they did or they didn't. And I'll take my uh, uh, answer off the air. Okay, sir, we thank you for the call. Isn't there, in fact, a tradition that there was some rivalry and difficulty between the Jerusalem church and Paul? Yeah, we know about this from Paul himself in his letter to the Galatians. He uh, he deals with the problem, which uh, the way the way Paul put it, the problem had to do with the status of Gentiles in the church. Uh, do Gentiles um, are are Gentiles required to keep the Jewish law or not if they're going to be followers of Jesus? And Paul was adamant that Gentiles uh, did not have to follow the law because doing so would indicate that the death of Jesus itself was not sufficient for salvation. Uh, there were people in the Jerusalem church who seemed to think otherwise, including probably James and possibly sometimes Peter. Uh, and uh, so there was a controversy over that issue. Do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Uh, it's not clear that Paul won all of the arguments. Uh, he, his, his books are the ones that made it into the New Testament. Uh, but, uh, you know, it may well be that the other side had a lot of, a lot of arguments on its behalf. Speaking of the books that make it into the New Testament and books that don't, uh, when was the New Testament put together in the form that we now have? Well, one of the earliest lists we have is from the year 367, written by Archbishop Athanasius. Um, and that is a list of the 27 books that are now in the New Testament collection. We know that many books from the New Testament were widely circulated before that, but we also know that, for example, the Gospel of Thomas was widely circulated as well. Bart, do you want to Yeah, well, add to that? that is the interesting thing, is that Athanasius is mm -hmm. the first one to give us our list. Uh, and he's writing 300 years after most of these books had been, had been composed. And so... Is he working on his own, or is he reporting for a committee? Uh, he's, he's on his own, uh, and there never was a committee vote, yeah. actually, uh, which is the interesting thing. I, what a lot of people think now, because they've read the Da Vinci Code, is that uh, this whole thing was decided at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. In fact, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon. They didn't talk about the canon. It wasn't an issue. Uh, the Emperor Constantine didn't say a, a word about uh, the formation of the canon. Uh, it, uh, most of the people at the Council of Nicaea agreed on many of the books that should be scripted. They agreed on the four Gospels, the letters of Paul, etc. But the contours of the canon weren't finally set, probably until the 4th or 5th century. And even now there's dispute. There are churches in the world today that have a different canon from the 27 books you can buy at your local bookstore. Who does? Uh, well, for example, in the Ethiopian church, there there uh, are some additional books. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were debates even act actually in the fourth century, some really interesting debates about uh, about the status of books like the Apocalypse of Peter, which is the uh, first, uh, the first uh, Christian book that we have, which gives a guided tour of heaven and hell. So it's a forerunner of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Some people thought that one should be in mm -hmm. instead of the Apocalypse of John. Uh, but... Uh, but uh, that uh, that didn't actually uh, work out, obviously. Five nine one seven two double zero is our number, and now I see a number of lines are available again. So if you you've been trying to reach us, keep trying. You will get through. Somebody will surely get through. Five nine one seventy two hundred, and you are next on the air. Good evening, uh, Dr. Rosenberg, and uh, greetings to your two guests as well. Um, a frontline special some years ago suggested that 
Jesus was an Essene from the upper middle class and a social reformer, the last two uh, points, not unlike uh, Karl Marx uh, and other reformers throughout history, but uh, not from the lower classes. And I'm curious, what do they say regarding this, and how does it affect the uh, ossuary story, aside from their other very, very reasonable and interesting uh, objections? I've never heard that case being made. I mean, the evidence that we have from the earliest sources is that he was from a um, peasant family in Nazareth. But the uh, hypothesis that he may have been oh, through the Essene monastery. Ah, uh, well, we. Uh, I have never. Heard, I've heard people say that, but yes. we have no evidence, no. except except the fact that the preaching of Jesus about the coming of the end time yeah. and the judgment of God that would come has many resonances with with what the Essenes actually sure. taught. That's that's right. Uh, and the the difficulty with thinking that he himself was an Essene is that some of his major emphases are precisely the opposite of those of the Essenes. Mm -hmm. The Essenes believed in establishing monastic communities off in the wilderness in order to m maintain their own purity away from the, the filth and the dirtiness of society at large. And the thing Jesus is best known for is for being in there with the, the tax collectors and sinners. What about the uh, argument that I believe the Frontline Special was making, and they interviewed a number of, I believe, Catholic theologians at, um, I think it was one of the Loyola universities, as far as uh, a social reform, especially a kind of revolutionary social reform against the Romans. Right. I mean, the, the question is what Jesus really was standing for and and what kind of revolution he wanted. He must have been urging some kind of revolution because they wouldn't have crucified him otherwise. Uh, the question is what was the nature of this revolution? And the earliest sources are fairly consistent, actually, in what they portray Jesus as teaching. It's what Elaine was summarizing earlier, that Jesus was anticipating that, in fact, there was going to be a, a, a new kingdom that arrives. Uh, in other words, that it was an apocalyptic message. You find this in all of the earliest levels of our sources, the Gospel of Mark, the source the scholars have called Q, various sources behind Mark, uh, behind Matthew and Luke. And so it looks like uh, actually the preaching was that God was soon going to intervene in history and overthrow the forces of evil. So it wasn't a social revolution in the sense that he thought you could make things better by changing the social structure. The, the reference to uh, somebody from Loyola, I think, sir, uh, though I didn't see that Frontline special you're talking about, they must have been talking with Tom Sheehan. Is that the name? I don't remember. This was about eight, ten years ago. Yes, I Tom Sheehan is a, uh, is a, um, was a member of the Department of Philosophy. He's since gone on, I think, to Stanford. But uh, uh, an active lay Catholic interested in, in uh, uh, sort of the critical study of uh, the New Testament. And he did a book based upon a scholarship uh, done by others, a book titled uh, the first coming about the real Jesus. And he argued uh, for Jesus as essentially a kind of a social revolutionary. Interesting. That hypothesis has been around before. We talked about it privately, I think, during one of the commercials, <laughs> that English rabbi, uh, Schoonover, as he called himself, who wrote the book The Passover Plot, lays out a similar hypothesis. And I'm gratified. Uh, thank you all. We thank you, sir, for the call. And it's time for pause for the usual reasons and then directly back. And my guests are Elaine Pagels and Bart Ehrman. We return to them and to your calls to them on Good Evening. Uh, hi, Milt. I enjoy your show very much. Thank you, sir. Uh, I actually have four quick questions, if I could ask them very quickly. I doubt that you can, but why don't you give us the, the, the two top ones? Um, do we know who Jesus' teachers were? And uh, if the resurrection was, uh, if it happened, why didn't the, he appear to the entire world? Uh, why just to just a few people? 
Mm -hmm. Jesus' teachers. Uh, the only, the only uh, teacher we know about would be uh, John the Baptist, uh, that he, whom he associated with uh, at the beginning of his ministry, who had, of course, an apocalyptic message himself. And Jesus may have picked up some of his apocalyptic things from John the Baptist. As for the resurrection, well, of course, th these days you don't have to be, um, you can be a Christian and still uh, suggest it, if only privately, whispering sotto voce to your friends, well, the, the resurrection didn't really happen, but it's a very significant story all the same. Well, it is, but there's there's no suggestion in the New Testament that Jesus appeared to the whole world. I mean, He appeared to whom he chose he to appear. He appeared to people who had known him intimately. Yeah. And in fact, people today have experiences like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's the same experience because I don't know what it happened back then, but but when people say they have seen one who has died, it's usually someone they've known well. We go back to the phones, 5917200. Good evening, you're on the air. Good evening. Uh, what records would have we had from the religious establishment, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, about Jesus? And I guess, would have they been burned in the sacking of uh, Jerusalem in uh, around 70 A.D.? Well, that's interesting. There must be a record someplace. There must have been, but we just haven't found it. Well, yeah, that, that's the thing. You, you would expect uh, that uh, Jesus would have been the talk of the town and that there'd be a lot of things written about him, not just by his friends, but by his enemies. But as it turns out, we don't have uh, any record from anybody during his time period who even mentions him. Uh, and so uh, the answer is there aren't any records from any Sadducee or Pharisee. But that's not that unusual because, as it turns out, we don't have the writings of any Sadducee uh, from the ancient world. And the, uh, the only Pharisee uh, who, whose writings we have from before the destruction of the temple uh, happens to be the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee who converted to Christianity. And so we simply don't have records of any kind about anybody from, from Pharisees or Sadducees. All right, thank you. We thank you, sir. And we'll go quickly to another caller on 591-7200, 591-7200. And here is that caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, are you there? Apparently not. Too bad. Um, because this question as was given to me, well, now it's disappeared from the screen as well. Therefore, I can't tell you anything more about it. Uh, but uh, we will proceed to yet another. 5917200 is the number. Good evening. You are on the air. I'm not sure if that's me. It's somebody who imitates you very closely. Oh, good. Okay. Hi, Milt. Great program. Very interesting. I have a master's degree in Middle Eastern Archaeology at the Department of Oriental Studies at your, <laughs> your university. Mm -hmm. And um, comparative religion was kind of a you know minor, and I loved it and thought it was interesting. Went to Israel, went to Egypt. I've been to Jordan since. Um, Jesus was teacher, and we say that he was a teacher. A teacher, rabbi means teacher. He was a rabbi. In order to be that and preach in Israel as he did and to reform his church, which was Judaism, which is what he set out to do, he would have had to have known the Torah, the Talmud, or whatever it's called. I'm a lapsed Catholic, so if my pronunciations are bad, I'm sorry. Jesus set out to reform Judaism, not to form another religion. Paul does not get enough credit. It was Paul who formed and made Christianity and to be separated from Judaism by the calling of the people as Christians. And he was the one who said, no, you don't have to memorize the Talmud, Torah, whatever. 
And no, you don't have to be circumcised. Anybody can worship Jesus. And here's what he said, and here's what he did. Paul, on the other hand, came along 35 years after he died. He didn't know Peter. He didn't know any of those people. On the road from Damascus, he had an epiphany or a vision or whatever. And he decided that he was going to form this different side of Judaism where you didn't have to do all this stuff. Jesus was crucified because he was proclaimed as the king of the Jews. Romans got nervous and said, I'm sorry, we don't have any other kings. You're out of here. Uh, we only have Caesar, and, you know, you're in big trouble. So I don't understand where it comes from that it, why Paul doesn't get the credit for having formed Christianity and, and you know, something Yeah, like well, some have argued that. I remember a book written years ago by some British clergyman that was titled, it's a, it's a book about Paul titled The First Christian, arguing that he is really the founder Absolutely. of Christianity. Yeah. Well, Paul, as Bart Ehrman said, is the one who, who uh, formulated a message that was preached particularly to Gentiles and, and a practice that was adapted to people who didn't uh, practice uh, halakhic um, purity. And, you know, that certainly did become uh, an enormous development in this movement. I don't know whether Paul anticipated that it would become as it, what it did. I think the evidence suggests that the first people who were called Christians were Gentile converts to Paul's view. I'm not even sure, it seemed to me that Paul would not consider himself a Christian. To understand the shaping of Christianity, you must as well, I should think, uh, examine its relation to uh, the Roman Empire and the uses that were made of Christianity by the time Constantine becomes the emperor. Well, that's right. I mean, in fact, this ties in closely with a lot of the things we've been talking about tonight, that that uh, Christianity uh, wasn't just one thing, and Pauline Christianity wasn't the only kind of Christianity. And so I, I myself am reluctant to talk about Paul as the second founder of Christianity, as he's sometimes called, because Paul inherited a, a good deal from his predecessors, and there were other Christians uh, in the world who had other points of view. Uh, and so in the early decades when Paul was writing, one of the striking things about the Paul, Paul's letters is that in every one of his communities, there are Christians who take different points of view. I mean, Paul's always arguing against his Christian opponents, which means that there are different forms of Pauline Christianity and uh, different forms of Christianity that had nothing to do with Paul. So that I think Paul was an important figure, but I don't think it's fair to say that he started the movement. Uh, the movement had been around for a long time before Paul started writing. What do we know about the deaths of the crucial disciples plus Paul? Um, most of them are crucified themselves, are they not in time? What we, what we know is legend, which suggests that, that Paul was executed by the Romans, that Peter mm -hmm. was crucified, so the legend says. And what about the other disciples? We know that James, or at least it has been alleged that James was stoned to death, and that's been questioned by some scholars recently. But it was apparently very dangerous to be a member of that movement, certainly a leader, uh, you know, in the time after the death of Jesus. Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And it, one of the interesting things is that um, 
sometimes uh, some of my students, I, I, I teach in the South in North Carolina, and I have students who, who want to know uh, how Christianity could possibly be false because all of the disciples of Jesus were, were martyred for their faith. And uh, when I ask them what makes them think that all the disciples were martyred for their faith, it's like it's common knowledge that they all were. But in mm -hmm. fact, uh, Elaine's right, it's, it's based on legend. We don't know. Uh, some of the earliest legends are clearly le legendary. When, uh, the, in the Acts of Paul, when is our earliest account of Paul getting the actual narrative, the first actual narrative we have of Paul being executed by the Romans. He's, he's beheaded. Uh, when he's beheaded, uh, milk starts spurting from his neck instead of blood. Well, this isn't exactly a historical, historically reliable source. So uh, I think we have a lot of later legends about how these people died, but in, in most instances, I don't think we really know. Where do we have the story that when um, Peter is crucified, he uh, asks to be uh, crucified upside down? Yeah, that's in the Acts of Peter, the, uh, the famous... It is biblical. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. This is a second century. Oh, uh, in the Acts of Peter. The yes. Acts of Peter, uh, where, uh -huh. uh, and and in fact, uh, it's sometimes said that he wanted to be crucified upside down because he didn't, he wasn't worthy to die yeah. in the way of the Lord. In fact, when you read the Acts of Peter, he gets crucified upside down as a kind of a metaphorical statement that this world is topsy turvy, and it's only by uh, kind of looking at it from upside down that you can understand the the true right and wrong. This is not necessarily an important area to go into, but still, I'm remembering Mel Gibson's film, and which in turn leads me to uh, just re remembering I've seen so many films treating of the life and death of Jesus. This is a continuing engram, isn't it, or a meme in Western consciousness, which is always being worked and reworked in film, in, uh, imagine, in novels that imagine the scene, and so on. It certainly is, and, and it strikes me the best one that I know is by Pasolini, hmm. The Passion According to, to St. Matthew. Uh, what what seems to me not to work at all is writing dialogue for Jesus. Um, <laughs> there, it, it just doesn't work very well. Yeah, Unless you quote the Sermon on the Mount or something like that. <laughs> well, that's not writing dialogue. That's, no, that's, that's using that's drawing the from dialogue from the, the Gospels, yeah. and the, that's why Pasolini's film, which only uses Matthew as a source, uh -huh. is really quite brilliantly done. Yeah, as opposed to Mel Gibson, of course, who writes the uh, dialogue in Aramaic, uh, until <laughs> yes. Jesus goes before Pilate, in which, and w when he starts speaking in fluent Latin, <laughs> which is uh, really uh, quite quite an interesting move on in his Gibson's part. In Gibson's film. Yes, yes. We had an interesting discussion of the film on this program when the, there was so much controversy about it. And uh, Sam Sandmill, whom I mentioned earlier, oh. Sam Sandmill's son is now the rabbi at uh, the major congregation in Hyde Park one of the two major congregations. Uh, and uh, he's also something of a scholar of these matters. And he pointed out that uh, a great inaccuracy in that film is the Roman soldiers speaking Latin, when in fact they were they were Syrian and would have been speaking Aramaic, uh, just as were the, the Israelites. Yes. Uh, we are due for another quick stop, and let's take an email right now. I am a great, I'm reading, uh, I am a great fan of Dr. Ehrman and have purchased several of his lecture series from the teaching company. My question concerns the, quote, proof for when the Gospels were written. I just recently read a novel written by Anne Rice, she of the Vampire Chronicles, who in recent years has become a born-again Catholic. The novel concerned the early life of Jesus. In the epilogue, she explains her current belief system and uh, makes the statement that she feels the Gospels, if not written by contemporaries of Jesus, were written much earlier 
than most biblical scholars assume. What are the basic arguments that the Gospels, which are clearly based on earlier oral traditions, were actually written down many years after the events in question occurred? Bart, why don't you? Yeah, so uh, the evidence is actually uh, difficult um, and, and hard to summarize, but there are a couple points that are worth mentioning. One is that uh, we have a writer like the Apostle Paul, who, is, uh, who almost certainly is writing in the 50s of the Common Era, and who shows no knowledge at all of knowing any of the Gospels. Uh, and he was well-traveled. Uh, he knew some of the apostles in Jerusalem. And if there were gospels floating around, you would expect that he would show some evidence of knowing them. Secondly, there are references in the gospels that seem to indicate that the gospel writers knew that Jerusalem had been destroyed. Uh, as, for example, Luke chapter 21, there's a, quite a detailed description of what it'll be like when Jerusalem is surrounded by the pagan troops. Uh, that makes it sound like the, this author knew about the destruction of Jerusalem. That was in the year 70. So Luke was probably written sometime after the year 70. So these are the kinds of arguments that, uh, that people use, uh, and other more complicated ones based on things like the, uh, the oral traditions and the length of time it takes to develop the kinds of oral traditions that you find in the Gospels. We will never know, will we, who the actual authors, who stands behind Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, we call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really out of tradition. The, the, the old tradition was that Matthew and John were two of the disciples and that uh, Mark was a companion of Peter and Luke was a companion of Paul. But there's pretty good reason for thinking that, in fact, those, those descriptions are, are uh, legendary. I mean, just taking the Gospel of John as an example, what we know about John from the Gospel, John the son of Zebedee, is that he was a lower-class fisherman from Galilee. Uh, people like that weren't educated. Uh, he would have been an Aramaic-speaking Jew. Well, this Gospel is written in highly literate Greek. Uh, so now it's possible that after the resurrection, John went back to school and uh, learned Greek and that he took some composition classes and became skilled in Greek composition so that at the end of his life, he wrote a gospel. But it seems probable that he had other things on his mind other than that. And so he probably wasn't the author of this gospel. Back to the phones, 5917200. And you are on the air. Good evening. Yes, sir. Um, the Gnostic Gospels that you were referencing earlier, I've never read them except for little um, parts in uh, Christian writings from you know, Christian authors of today. And I was just wondering, is there any biblical prophecy mentioned in any Gnostic gospel, uh, like there isn't uh, what we consider to, you know, the Holy Word? Elaine Pagel. Well, if you mean by biblical prophecy, prophecy about the end of the world, uh, it appears, for example, in the Gospel of Judas, there's anticipation of the end of the world. Uh, certainly there are prophetic passages in some of these. Okay, and the other question, uh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And the other question I had, what does the word Gnostic actually mean? The word Gnostic is a Greek word that means one who knows. And when I wrote the Gnostic Gospels, I was using it um, particularly influenced by the reading of the Gospel of Thomas, which talks about knowing God. It, it talks about knowing oneself and knowing God, and that the emphasis in, in that kind of text is not on faith. It's not like, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Jesus? But it's coming to know God uh, uh, in a kind of experiential way. And that emphasis does characterize many of these texts. Isn't there also the, the theme that there is secret knowledge available for, uh, for specially appointed persons? but not for everybody, the difference between esoteric and exoteric knowledge. Yes, and you know, if, if you look in the Gospel of Mark, we can see there that 
um, whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus, while he taught publicly uh, in many ways, he also taught privately to his disciples and explained things to them secretly. And Mark contains very little that's attributed to, to that private conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, these other Gospels that were found claim to, um, to transmit secret teachings of Jesus that he gave in the, according to the Gospel of Thomas to Thomas, in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene to Mary Magdala, and so forth. And they claim to be mm -hmm. those kinds of private teaching. Is it possible? I've sometimes wondered this. I've never read anything. Uh, on the subject directly, uh, is it possible that the Greek mystery religions uh, somehow provided the model for Gnosticism or for the notion of available and esoteric no uh, religious knowledge? Well, it's possible, but I think a closer source would be, you know, the teaching of rabbis. That is the teaching in a public way and the teaching that they would give to their um, to their more sophisticated and mm -hmm. higher level students. Back to the phones, 591-7200. Good evening, you're on the air. Yes. In consideration that Jesus was a respected familiar of John the Baptist and founded a movement which was either alternative or successor to the movement of John the Baptist, and that his brother James was a member of the Sanhedrin, is it clear that he, he was lower class where did you get the, the middle class where, hold on sir where do you get the uh, the assertion that james was a member of the sanhedrin james the just who was stoned to death who was a member of the sanhedrin i've never I seen any evidence of that no josephus says that he was uh, stoned to death uh, by the members of the sanhedrin but uh, i don't think oh. uh, it indicates well, that he was, yeah but but he was apparently a person of, of uh, tremendous respect <laughs> Yes, well, I think I think he, I think that that's right. Uh, although it doesn't really speak to his class. I mean, what we know about Jesus, we we actually don't know very much about Jesus' early life. The only statement we have in the Gospels is in the Gospel of Mark in chapter six, where it says that uh, that Jesus was a tectone is the Greek word that's used, and the, usually it's translated carpenter, but uh, it probably gives the wrong connotation to call him a carpenter because when we think of carpenters, we think of uh, people who make fine cabinetry, for example. And uh, but the tectone was simply somebody who worked with with his hands. The the modern the kind of feel for the term tectone you would get in a modern lingo is to is to say that Jesus was a was a construction worker. Uh, somebody who, who worked with his hands. Um, he may have made gates and yokes, or he may have worked with uh, stone. We don't really, really know. But it, it was a lower class profession that that the upper class elite actually looked down upon. And so, uh, if Mark's right about that, then it's prob probably that he wasn't wasn't anything above the lower class. Our thanks to the caller and ranging rather quickly. Let's go to the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. I have a question for uh, both your guests. Would they know why the early church, their primary reason for rejecting the Gnostic text, um, what, what was primarily behind their reasoning? Elaine? We have discussions of this by one of the earliest uh, known people to denounce these texts in, in around the year 180. He's uh, a leader or bishop of Christians in what is now France. And he basically... Is that Irenaeus? Irenaeus yeah. declares that there are four authentic Gospels. 
Now, he doesn't give much basis for that. He says these are written by eyewitnesses, um, and that is something that scholars today uh, know that we can't validate from historical evidence. Um, but he, he simply claims that all the other, the secret gospels, he says, are all illegitimate. And I think that it's his conviction that private teaching should not be part of the um, the recognized uh, authoritative texts that are used. I mean, what his motivation is is another question. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking. Well, it sounds like you're saying that the motivation might have been primarily political in nature and less with maintaining a consistent tr truth throughout the New Testament itself. Is that Are you saying his motivation was more political than it was maintaining a, a, a true Christian-type faith without interference from other sources? I think you're right that his conviction, it was, I mean, there's probably not one motive, but he was concerned with maintaining a consistent universal faith. He says very clearly, we have to have the same teaching among among Christians in France, as, as in Germany, as in Africa, as in Spain. I mean, all Christians have to believe the same thing. And he begins, uh, he, he repeats formulations that Christians earlier had made about Jesus is the Son of God, he was raised from the dead, he was born from a virgin, the beginning of what will later become creedal formulations. Sir, we thank you for the call. And the last required pause, and then we return to Elaine Pagels and Bart Ehrman. Uh, you know, we haven't yet uh, fully uh, adverted to the book by Bart Ehrman, which I hold in my hand, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. How much has the Bible been changed? You've got some quantitative estimates, which are really quite striking. <laughs> well, the, what people don't realize is that we don't have the original New Testament. We don't have any of the writings as the authors produced them. What we have are copies that are made later. In most cases, these copies are made centuries later. They're copies of copies of copies. Copies of copies of copies. And, what, and the problem is whenever anybody copies a text by hand, which means copying one one sentence, one word, one letter at a time by hand, people make mistakes. And sometimes these mistakes are just accidents. They'll leave out a word or leave out a line. Or uh, Sometimes there, there seem to be intentional changes where they actually tried to change the meaning of the text. This happened a lot, uh, uh, so much so that of the over 5,000 manuscripts we have of the New Testament, no two of them are exactly alike in all their wording. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of these differences among our manuscripts, and so what I usually tell my students is that uh, that we don't, we actually don't know the the total number, but we do know that there are more changes in the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So that's a lot. Now most of the most of these changes are completely mm -hmm. immaterial and insignificant. Are there any that have really uh, produced a mistake in meaning? Absolutely, there that are has a lot. Persisted. There, uh, well, uh, there are a number of stories that people know about that uh, that weren't originally in the New Testament. I mean, the most famous probably is the story of <laughs> Jesus and the woman taken in adultery, where Jesus tells mm -hmm. the, his opponents that if they want to stone her, let the one without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. Uh, this very famous and, and powerful story uh, wasn't originally in the New Testament. It was added later by, by scribes. Uh, so that's one example. There are there are uh, dozens and dozens of examples of of uh, passages that got changed that um, have made their way into English translation in ways that were not uh, the way they were originally written. Um, and for a full exemplification of that thesis, uh, the book uh, 
of reference is Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. For a full examination of what we now know and can interpret of the recently released, recently edited and released uh, Gospel of Judas, uh, the book of reference is by Elaine Pagels and Karen L. King, reading Judas, the Gospel of Judas and the Shaping of Christianity. 5917200, the number. We'll work in a few more calls before the uh, before 11 o'clock, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hi. Um, boy, that last comment was very interesting. Uh, has the Old Testament been changed? Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. The, people tend to think the Old Testament wasn't changed because of the copying practices of Jews in the Middle Ages, where they're extremely meticulous in making sure they didn't change anything. Uh, the problem is that the, the Hebrew Bible had been copied for centuries before these copying practices were in place. Uh, one of the significant things about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they provided us copies of some books of the, of the Hebrew Bible that were a thousand years earlier than our otherwise previously uh, known copy. And in some places, the scribes did an extremely good job over those thousand years, but there are other places where, in fact, there were a lot of changes made. Any major differences? Uh, yeah, major differences in some uh, some parts uh, that we knew about before because uh, for, we have translations of the Hebrew Bible into other languages from the ancient world. Uh, and For example, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, there are some, and, and the Greek translation would have been based on Hebrew texts that no longer survive. There are some books of the Old Testament where the Septuagint version is almost uh, eight or nine percent uh, shorter than the version in the Hebrew Bible. Which, which part? I'm sorry? Which part? Uh, different books. I mean, for example, the book of Jeremiah. And there are other books that are extremely problematic textually, like the book of Hosea and the book of Job, uh, which are textually extremely... Pro there are passages where uh, even uh, experts have trouble understanding what the, the text might have originally The five books of Moses, uh, any changes there? Yes, uh, there are changes in all in in uh, in every book. From, there are changes in every book from antiquity. I mean, the problem is that books were copied by hand, and people made mistakes. And sir, we thank you for the call. Right. And uh, time being rather short, let's go quickly to another. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello, Milt. Uh, very interesting discussion as always. Thank you, sir. My question uh, concerns the divinity of Christ, and I wanted to ask your guest. If, in their opinion, uh, did Christ claim divinity for himself, or was it claimed for him by the writers of the Gospels? As far as we can tell, it was claimed for him by other people. Now, it could be that he himself claimed that, but it seems enormously unlikely. When we talk about Jesus as Son of God, we're using a title for the King of Israel. <laughs> and it was probably the case that his followers saw him as the designated future king of Israel. And that's what they meant when they called him son of God. They would have called David also God's son, the one that God appointed. We thank you, sir. Time is almost out. Uh, so Something that really occurs to me tonight for the first time, is there a comparable scholarship looking at uh, scripture in, but looking at it critically with, uh, with uh, scholarly methods in the other non-Christian religions. Uh, does this happen in Judaism? Does it happen in Islam? For that matter, does it happen in Buddhism? Yeah, well, the answer is yes. Uh, 
it's uh, it, it is these are all bona fide uh, fields of scholarship. Uh, Judaism probably has the longest history uh, of it, and there are brilliant Jewish scholars today who work on very similar problems, both textual problems about what the text uh, actually said, and historical problems uh, about uh, what what the relationship between these literary texts and historical reality. Do they conjecture on who the historical Moses really was? Exactly. Or if he existed at all? Yeah. Th those are big questions. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, in Islam, I'm not familiar with this kind of scholarship. I know there is some done, and there are some prohibitions on the kind of questions yeah. one may ask, so far as I I brought across it. reference to one book. I've not read it, but I've seen a, an ad for it someplace, which argues that uh, there was no historical Muhammad. He didn't exist. I haven't seen that book, no. but I, I, it's my understanding, which is limited, that questioning whether all the sayings in the Quran are, are spoken by the Prophet Muhammad uh, is a practice that's not encouraged by many leaders. Yeah, there's a somewhat more um, rejecting attitude towards this kind of critical scholarship. Uh, well, that's right. I mean, th that's the tradition, although there are uh, there are uh, both Muslim scholars and non-Muslim scholars who are interested in the transmission of the Quran, uh, and uh, the recent scholarship suggests that in fact there are there are textual problems with the Quran, just as there are with any book that came down to us from antiquity. My friends, we've reached the end of the available time. I'm delighted that the two of you were able to join us tonight. Let's quickly once again make clear that the new book by Elaine Pagels, uh, together with Karen King, is Reading Judas, and that is just published by Viking and the uh, new edition of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, is published, is available and is published by Harper San Francisco.